Hello and welcome to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. I'm Claire Wright, the Head of Training and Digital Services at the FPA. I'll be your host for this podcast and in a move away from our normal format, we have not one but three guests to discuss our topic today. The Building Safety Bill will require all high-rise blocks that are taller than 18 metres or seven storeys to be managed by a Building Safety Manager. Our panel will discuss what will be required of those stepping into this critical new position and the practical steps individuals can take to ensure that they follow the competency framework. I'm delighted to be joined by our three guests who are uniquely placed to offer valuable insights to this discussion. Anthony Taylor, Chairman of Working Group 8. John Brett, Director of Health and Safety Compliance at Estates and Management Limited. And John Briggs, our Commercial Director here at the FPA. Firstly, thank you all for taking the time to speak to me today. Anthony, if we can turn to you first, perhaps you could give us some background on Working Group 8 and the PAS 8673, which has just come out for public consultation. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you, Claire, for inviting me. Um, Working Group 8 was a group of about um, 15 to 20 people most of the time from all over the sector, and we were charged with putting together the competence framework for a building safety manager. Uh, We were working on the premise of uh, James Judith Hackett's advice and what she really wanted to come of of all this legislation. And we started, I think it was in about June 2018, uh, and we had obviously loads and loads of meetings. But initially, we totally ignored the concept of competence until we worked out exactly what it was that the building safety manager was likely to do. What, the, what was the environment that the, 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 this person was going to be working in? Who were the people that they were going to be talking or liaising with or managing or whatever the expression might be? Um, we spent two or three sessions doing that. Um, we also expanded on our report, which was put out um, last year at the end of the, with the whole of the CSG, which was the Competent Steering Group run by the IRG, sorry, there's a lot of acronyms, Industry Response Group. Um, we had a full appendix uh, because we put a lot of recommendations in our report as well, rather than simply the competencies which has led on to Working Group 8 being effectively expanded now because the job of Working Group 8 was to produce the competence framework. We did have a whole chapter in there, did quite a lot of detail, and that has now been handed the uh, BSI, and they are working on it, uh, and I'm pleased to be involved with that, uh, on PAS 8673, which is looking at the competences for individuals or who might undertake the BSM role or nominated individuals who are the similar uh, function but within an organization. So the PAS is very strictly for individuals, although we are obviously working um, in the background with others to look at how organizations might do it. The PAS has just been published, um, as in about a week or two ago for public consultation. Uh, There are a couple of major issues with it. Uh, with my hat as the chair of Working Group 8, I, I'm fully um, on the side of those who want a holistic building safety manager, somebody who has an idea of much more than purely the regulations. But there are those within the group uh, on the PAS who are looking at the PAS purely to look at the competences necessary to do with um, spread of fire and structures, which is actually the, the very limited area that the new regulations deal with. So 
you know, that's that's a question we're putting out to the public. It's currently written in the way the Working Group 8 wanted it, which is more holistic. Um, I think it's most important that it does remain holistic because the building safety manager is going to be looking after a building, you know, with residents in it. There was an issue with the regulations, but the, which the, your other correspondents here will, will understand, is the complication of having the regulations dealing purely with the residential element of the 18-story building. But the building safety manager is going to have to have a view of everything, because he's got a mixed use, for instance. He's got to liaise with the people who will be the responsible persons beneath. Fundamentally, if you've got a significant fire in the mixed use underneath the residential, it's going to affect the residential. But I won't go much further than that. The PAS is also um, very focused on behaviours and integrity. There's obviously the, the, this definition of SKEB, skills, knowledge, experience, and behaviours. Skills, knowledge, um, and experience are well understood in the industry and are reasonably well um, measured when one comes to assessment. The issue is around behaviours, because fundamentally, you can have all the skills, knowledge, and experience in the world, but if you don't have the integrity to do the job correctly, it's actually worthless. So we're focusing very, very hard on, on integrity. And the other bit of working group eight, so we've got the PAS, uh, which we're working on, and we're also working on something called the Building Safety Alliance, which is being put in place in order to undertake the assessments of those who want to become a building safety manager against the criteria set out by the PAS. I hope that's reasonably clear and a fairly complicated picture. <laughs> that's great. Thank you for that overview. That was that was really comprehensive. And we'll come back to a couple of those um, points that you've just raised later. John Brett, if I can turn to you. The building safety manager role, uh, looking after the management of fire and structural safety in higher risk buildings on a day-to-day -day basis, um, and establishing a point of contact for fire and safety issues for, for the building occupants. Perhaps bearing in mind what Anthony's just said about the SKEB, in your view, um, what experience and skills will the building manager ideally have? And maybe touching on, again, on some of those uh, behaviours as well. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Claire. No, that, that's, uh, that's, a, that's some good points. Um, I've mentioned these sort of things in, in previous discussions, and uh, I think key to this is that you're going to need a wide range of uh, capabilities and, and skills in order to, uh, to fulfill the role of a building safety manager. Now, to me, a key skill is still going to be that building of trust and establishing effective engagement with residents on top of the technical skills or the ability to source those technical answers that the building safety manager will still need to avail themselves to. So I feel that you know it's people skills are going to be essential, but it's about getting that balanced approach um, for the building safety manager to have the the sort of the skills from the technical aspect or the ability to find the or source technical answers with that sort of person centered approach and being able to actually sort of deal with the residents you're going to be dealing with on on a regular basis. Now, just picking up on something that Anthony said, it's interesting we should talk about behaviours. Because um, resident behaviour is often a key risk that's associated with fires in buildings. It's the way people sort of behave within their, their own homes. And I think that building that rapport, the building safety manager using um, his or her ability to build the rapport with the residents within the building or buildings that they're going to be looking after will help improve that engagement as well. So, again, it goes back to that pe the, the people skills and the uh, the ability to actually work with um, a number of people, engage at various different levels. Um, this is going to be a, a role that you're actually going to be 
working with boards of uh, of organizations, company boards, boards of directors. You're going to be dealing with sort of technical aspects and technical experts and professionals within the field, and you're going to be dealing with your residents. So that sort of ability to communicate is going to be a key skill. Um, and you can you can put a lot of uh, points within the PaaS, which I'm, I'm a firm believer in, uh, in terms of the the actual sort of standardization of the uh, the, the background and the um, the the scope for for having a standard. But the, the skills necessary to deal with people is, is going to be a key uh, skill that the, the building safety manager is going to have to hone. That's been raised by a number of people because this role itself, this actual job is, as you say, very technically skilled, um, needs to be very knowledgeable and experienced. But having those people skills in a variety of contexts and particularly when it comes to their their homes, um, it, it, yeah, that's going to be a, quite a quite a key feature for the for the actual personality of the whoever takes on the role. Given that it's it's a wide ranging job, has there been discussions or have you given thought to the fact that maybe this role would be performed by a team of people or a company um, and not just focus on one particular individual? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from from me as a personal perspective, I think it's going to really need to be performed by a team of people. Or if it's going to be an individual, they're going to need access to a team of people to give them the, the breadth of knowledge. I mean, it's not just about fire safety, but it's about the building safety. It's about the other elements, um, such as the big six compliance areas around electricity, lifts and gas, etc. that could well be another factor within the building that could lead to safety issues or, or um, be associated with safety issues that arise. And I believe that uh, the working group, the PAS um, 8673 working group, will be consulting over whether the assessment um, should of the person that's coming in to do the building safety manager role should be against a wider scope of all skills or a number of different skills or a more narrow scope, which could be then the more focused option. And then obviously then that person would have access to the, the, the back office team of professionals that could help out with, within a particular role. Certainly for for my organization, we, we rely a lot on uh, managing agents within uh, our, our field. And after discussions with a number of our, our managing agents, they're already gearing up to have that effective back office function. So we'll still have the named individual. You'll have your building safety manager. And as well as having that person that will have the right people skills to engage with the residents effectively, they'll have the knowledge and ability to interpret the, the professional sort of expertise and, and, and knowledge from, from the, uh, the back office team that will support them and act in that supporting capacity. That's great. Thank you, John. Given that, I'll just come back to Anthony then, who mentioned the Building Safety Alliance earlier and its its role really to play. Obviously, the Building Safety Alliance launched um, just at the end of last month and uh, some of our members have already been asking questions around it, which is really good to hear. You know, they're all they're all uh, aware of what's happening and and keeping an eye on um, on changes in the um, and developments to this role. So, in terms of defining competence or determining competence of current staff or looking for people who are trying to uh, either qualify or upskill themselves in the future, what role does the BSA, uh, will, will it have to play, uh, firstly for individuals, but then also given the fact that it could be a team or perhaps a company accreditation that we might be looking down the line, what sort of role would the BSA play here? The Building Safety Alliance has, has fed directly out of Working Group 8 because fundamentally we had loads of recommendations within our report. Uh, and in order to implement the concept of a building safety manager, you've obviously got to have a number of elements of infrastructure sitting behind it. 
governments have said very specifically that they are not going to hold registers of all these new legal entities being PDs, PCs, BSMs and what have you and accountable persons. So, it, it, you know, they very clearly say that if industry wants it, industry get on with it. So we in Working Group A have taken on that mantle. And the Building Safety Alliance is fundamentally a company limited by guarantee. It will be industry owned. Uh, by that, I say we've got about 40 members. We are in a position where we've got all uh, all the major professional bodies, you know, a few commercial entities. We've got insurers represented. and we have what we're terming observers, which are the the government, MHCLG, the regulator, UCAS, and, and others. Uh, they're there because they can't interfere with commercial industry-led things, but they're there to keep us on track, make sure we understand what where they're going, and indeed to hear uh, any comments that the Alliance might have in the way all this is going. So, you know, once we've set this thing up, which we're in the process of doing, the, there are three fundamentals that we're looking to deal with. One is, is to assess these individuals as competent, and they will be assessed against the PAS. We are assuming um, that the guidance will come from MHCLG or the regulator as part and parcel of this rollout of loads of statutory instruments will point towards the PAS as the level of competence required. Um, and we are building a system such that we will have the infrastructure to do it. After that, if one is successful, having, be, having been assessed against the PAS, one will be placed on a register, all of which, all of this, the assessment and the register will obviously be completely subject to all the usual governance, and checks and balances, UCAS accreditation, third-party accreditation, so on and so forth. So we've got, we've got a way to go yet. Uh, but and we haven't got much time because you know if this this law is coming out in um, I think it's May 23 we're expecting you know we've got 18 months to start getting competent people through the system. So in order to do that, what we're hoping to also do is to have a sort of pre-assessment capability there where prospective BSMs can check against the pre-assessment criteria, work out what their gaps and their skill set might be. Uh, and then go away, tidy them, tidy those things up before putting themselves forward as um, uh, you know for assessment. Uh, um, and I would just like to pick up very much and support what John said about communication. That is fundamental, absolutely fundamental, right there across the board, because these people are going to have to be able to liaise with the accountable person who's going to have the purse strings. If they are, if they're, if a managing agent's in the mix, they're going to have to deal with them. They're going to have to deal with the residents. They're going to have to understand all the documents that have been given to them by the experts who will they will drag in uh, to do the work. So, I mean, the way we have described it quite often by way of trying to clarify the level of competence, that these individuals are going to have to have the competence to be confident to be able to address these things with the experts. Once we've got the uh, system in place for the individuals, as I say, it's for individual BSMs and nominated individuals, we will then apply, in fact, we're trying to do it concurrently, is to look at how organizations might be tested against the desire to be building safety manager role organizations. And the tertiary and the final one is to look at all the other ad hoc people who come to do work on this 18-story building who may be very skilled but may never have worked on an HRB. And we're not talking here about contracting companies being competent. We're looking at the individuals within those companies to be competent to work on these things. 
Now, this is an industry-wide issue, and we're part of the, um, hopefully, the, the debating that's going on to try to assuage that requirement. Otherwise, the building safety manager, be it an organization or, individ or an individual, is going to spend most of his time checking the competences of the people come to check the light switch. You know, and we can't, it can't be having that. We've been very concerned to try and remove the commercial elements of people being tested. It's fundamentally important that people who employ a BSM from the register know that these people have been tested against the same criteria. There's not a commercial interest, so they are competent. Um, and, and also, hopefully, the regulator will take that at least as part of the investigation they're going to have as to whether the BSM is suitable and sufficient to operate the particular building they're looking for. Uh, the Building Safety Alliance, we're aiming to have a sort of oversight of it. So uh, as this legislation beds in and we need to change the PAS, as they all there, that's what they're designed for, then the Building Safety Alliance will be guardians of, of the quality of all of that. So I hope that, uh, I hope that gives a bit of a background to it. Thank you. Yes, it does. John Briggs, uh, I'll come to you next. You've um, you've been involved in in the management of buildings and and facility management from both a training and a and a sort of responsibility point of view. How do you see existing building managers or facility managers, as they they may be called? How do you see those who are wanting to apply for the role of BSM being able to kind of build their knowledge and their skills and experience in order to meet the requirements? of this newly defined role? Uh, thank you. Um, well, I think for the existing people, I think if they were to read the PAS 8673, uh, I think to them it would be uh, a bit of a shock in many ways because at the moment you can have a building manager who focuses on health and safety and uh, Legionella lifts the 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 big six and um you know that's that's one type of uh, expertise that people have then then you get um the, the other ex level of expertise say in fire where someone might be able to assess uh, a fire risk assessment or to understand fire alarms or aovs or other things that you have relating to fire in the building i think as it stands at the moment, it would be very difficult to find one person or a person who could do everything that's required of someone in the PAS. And I think also that the PAS splits it into three categories, which is basic, proficient and extensive. And I think if uh, when they talk about the, the sort of uh, res residents and the communication, I, if I was a resident in a high rise uh, residential block. I'd, I'd be worried if my BSM was only a basic. And I know, as as Anthony said, that to start with, this is aimed at the individual. But I think I tend to agree with the with the other John that actually I think the balance at the end of the day in eighteen months will probably be a group of individuals or a company that will be able to do it because I, if you just go through the list of the requirements of those basic proficient and extensive um it it's huge and i'm not sure that one person could be you know that good at at everything and the, and the other question that that sort of uh, appears and maybe one of the others could answer but the the um w when you think about um all the all the different types of buildings that you have Judging someone to be competent 
at uh, a high-rise residential block may not be the same degree of competence as someone who is doing the one that Anthony mentioned, you know, the, the mixed use where you might have a hotel and offices and flats. And, you know, so the, I think the competencies change depending on the building um, that you're talking about. So, you know, anything over 18 metres or seven storeys that's residential may have, um, you know, a completely different uh, setup to a, a similarly described building. You know, if one was if one was related to, uh, you know, I don't know, a care home or a hospital or a school or something, it might be completely different. And so the requirements of competency to look after that building would would perhaps be different, even though from the PAS, it would be the same. John, can I just uh, just comment a little bit about the PAS there? Uh, I mean, the idea is uh, a we've got to get people into the into the business, you know. So we need we need a sort of career path, so people can't start at you know super excellent to start with. And what we've tried to do in the past is is to get a sort of progressive uh, capacity to undertake more and more complex buildings. So basic is probably the wrong word because we did have a bit of a debate about that. Uh, but fundamentally, if there's a if I said a bulk standard block. Um, with no complexity, then basic should be, you know, that's what, you, you can't do any less than that, if you want a better expression, yeah? Um, but as the complexities build on the complexities of the building, then you're going to need more and more competence to understand that. I'd also just comment is, is to go back to my part about being competent enough to have the confidence to challenge people. There's no expectation that a, a BSM an individual is going to be able to cover all those bases, but what the and the, the point of the behavioural thing and the integrity, which perhaps I should have made a bit clearer, is that they've got to understand very clearly where their competence stops and they go and ask for help. Um, you know, because they can't cover all those bases, but they've got to understand that and they've got to be able to understand when they don't understand. But I mean, so I, I hope that sort of fleshes those bits out a little bit. Just to, to carry on with that, if if we're allowed, there is that um, if someone has, uh, you know, a, a high-rise residential block and is the BSM of that building, it's it's not just the structure of the building that changes. It's also things like um, whether it's a stay-put policy or not. Because if, if it's a stay-put policy and you've got 24 floors, uh, it's a different level of responsibility and control than if there are two fire exits and everyone is 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 out uh, in three minutes, and then you've essentially got a an empty building with 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 a fire in it rather than a full building. So I think it, you know even it's very hard to categorise, and that, I think that's really my point. I'm not. I'm just saying that PAS eight six seven three is starting from a basically from a blank sheet of paper, and we have to get people into it and get them to the right level. But I think it'd probably take longer than May twenty twenty three. Uh, to do well, that. I, well, I mean, I, I think we see, you know, from the Alliance and from Working Group 8, I think we're probably seeing that many of the people, there are a lot of people out there who are very skilled in, in, in most of the elements, but perhaps not one or two or three. Communications might be one. Um, you know, uh, I know that there are a lot of engineers, you know, through the Engineering Council and various, uh, a huge collection of engineers who are very interested in this. But dare I say it again without uh, wanting to slit my own throat, 
you know, engineers are not necessarily known to be the best communicators. I mean, their 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 job is to do the engineering, not to communicate. So this is this is a difficult thing. And uh, you know, reflecting on the other John John Brett's comment about um, organisations, I know certainly of a number of organisations are looking to provide this on a sort of hub and spoke basis. So they will go and audit the uh, the premises or the number of premises that that, that, that this organisation is going to handle, decide on how complex it is and what's in place and what isn't in place, and then have a, let's say, a two-thirds, if it's a relatively non-complex building, have a, you know, a, a pretty competent, but not fully competent, for want of an expression, and not highly competent BSM, but he can, he or she can refer back to the hub for expert advice. So, you know, it, it is an organisation supporting things, and uh, I think that, that they're very, there are many models being looked at one way and the other. Um, and as long as they work and we get residents safe, content, and, uh, and everything else in the building, then it doesn't really matter how it's done. It's the outputs we're all focusing on. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're um, we're sort of focusing here on the role of the, the building safety manager, but um, it's come up a number of times and it comes up for us on a, on a daily basis is we've talked about building types and defining that building type. Um, John Briggs, you, you've mentioned a couple of ways that you could define a building type. We We've talked about simple and complex for a number of years now, but nobody has really understood what that means. Do you foresee, and this is for, for anyone really, that um, there is the absolute need to go hand in hand and, and really start to categorize building types so people from the outside without knowing too much can understand whether just because it's a tall building or a mixed use building or depending on the, on the occupant types or the activities that happen within it or the policies that surround it, what level of risk is this building? Do you foresee that needing to happen hand in hand with this? We've heard that the ministry and various others, and I'm working with some others, to look at how we can risk manage un- imperfect buildings, if I just put it politely. Um, you know, the complexity of the building is one thing. The other matter that is, is outstanding and has not been answered is how many buildings can this individual whose name is over the door be responsible for? And this comes back again to the behaviours and integrity and indeed how the, uh, how the um, regulator is going to perceive it and judge it. You know, because if an organisation could take on, let us say, 200 buildings or 1,000 high-rise buildings, how many of these nominated individuals are they going to need within that to take that responsibility? Uh, because Jane Duthie's view was that those responsible should have a pretty intimate knowledge of the particular building, the residents and the risks associated with it all. However, you know, there is a, is a cost to that. And, and there's another point of, you know, almost unintended consequences. If we start labeling buildings as high risk, you're going to be upsetting the residents and their insurers and everybody else. So one's got to be very careful with this. It's a very sensitive subject. Uh, and I think we need to learn, um, perhaps use more modern methodologies for risk management. And ju- just to add to that, I think some years ago, it may have been six or eight years ago, London Fire Brigade tried to categorise buildings. Um, and 
uh, it just became an incredibly difficult beast to manage because it's so difficult to categorize buildings that are, for instance, similar to another building, but they end up having different categories or in different categories. And and how you label them is it is it to do with the occupants? Is it to do with the uh, the structure is it to do with you know, there's so many variables um it just becomes very difficult to actually produce a category and i think that the that when they talked about um this previously in in um the inquiry and certainly with dame judith they did anthony didn't they talk about relevant buildings i think so anytime you categorize anything you're going to have to allow for loads of i'll use the expression gray areas uh, and so it's, it's quite dangerous territory to do that. And, and that is really the point of the building safety manager and the accountable person. They've got to work this out. You know, they've got to work out how to make this building safe, whatever the level of risk. That's put into the safety case. It's supported with all the golden thread information. And they've damn well got to deliver on that safety case if the regulator feels that that safety case, if executed properly and, uh, and fully and substantially, will deliver a safe building. I agree with a number of points you, you, you've both made there, chaps. And uh, I was going to say that we, we've tried to use the term higher risk as opposed to high risk previously, just so people don't think there's, it is a high high risk building just to live there. It could just be that there's there's various sort of um, idiosyncrasies within that particular block. For example, you could have a commercial uh, unit on the, on, the, on the ground floor that's got absolutely no, no sort of key risks in it at all. Suddenly you put, say, um, a paint shop in there's got high, highly combustible materials and, and large amounts of them stored. That could increase the, the, the level of risk for the building, just as an example. Um, so, yeah, I think going back to what Anthony just mentioned then about the, the building safety case is going to be key. And obviously the building safety manager will feed into that building safety case. Um, I, I think that's going to be one of, one of the key elements to uh, to take this whole sort of process forward and to uh, run it successfully. You know, risk management and an enterprise, and if we take the building as an enterprise, is a whole different thing. And the, the concept that the whole of this regulation is set around is the safety case process. Again, this is entirely new to this industry. You know, when we're talking about safety case, you need to think oil rigs or chemical works you know, and when you're going to the planners and saying, I want to put a chemical works, you've got to work out how, you know, what is it going to be built of? What the material is going to go through it? How resistant are they? What are the procedures to manage it? Who are the people who are competent to manage it? And this, this is the safety case. Uh, and this is new and it uh, and it's is something that people have got to really understand and learn. And we've got a long way to go yet. Thank you. Yes, thanks, everyone. John Brett, if I can um, come to you on a um, and just bring in the discussion around residents. Prior to your position at Estates and Management Limited, you were Director of Resident Safety at London Borough of Camden, which manages or at that point, I think, had 210 high rises. From your experience in this role, how important is it that residents feel like they're being given a voice um, over these particular fire safety issues? Um, and we've again, we've talked about this is the role of the communicator, um, but maybe how do you see those two aligning? Oh, definitely. I think that uh, you know, the, the building safety manager's role is going to be key for, from a communication perspective. They're going to be communicating with the landlord. They're going to be communicating with the, the, the board. They're going to be communicating with the agent. But equally essential is the building safety manager is going to be having to communicate with residents and it's their ability to communicate effectively with residents that's going to really sort of allow that resident voice and that engagement to take place. 
Now, certainly at Camden, um, we were the first uh, organisation to create a resident safety board. And uh, that, that allowed sort of a, a good piece of interaction between um, enforcers. We had uh, representatives of London Fire Brigade on that board, uh, members of the council. And uh, on top of that, then it was bringing in sort of a wide ranging sort of group of residents. Um, and we didn't just sort of ask for somebody to put their hands up and say, OK, we're going give, to give you a place on this board. We actually interviewed the residents as well and asked them what's their interest, what's their interest in safety, what's their interest in their community and looking at them uh, and how they can sort of interact and, and bring something sort of uh, really positive to, to the board itself. That, that was a, a great sort of uh, media to, to use to, uh, to sort of engage with residents and, and to give residents that voice right the way through to the top of the, the local authority. But I think going forward, um, you know, yes, we have to to take into account resident voice. These these are the residents of the people that are going to be living within that building. This is their home. This is this is their castle, and uh, it, it's an important place for them. It, it's important for all of us uh, when, when we consider our homes. Um, but equally, I think the the crux of the building safety manager is that sometimes they're going to have to be um, breaking news, giving them sort of uh, giving the residents uh, feedback. Uh, concerning items that they might not always want to hear or they might not want to be involved in. And sometimes there's going to be that duty of protecting the residents from from themselves. Um, not, not all sort of uh, issues are going to be clear cut. You may have mixed tenure buildings where you've got tenants, you've got leaseholders, and um, the, the, the sort of important uh, aspects, especially around maybe a, a building re- um, refurbishment or significant remediation works that are going on, um, could have different aspects depending on whether the person's a tenant, whether the person's a leaseholder. Um, implications are on cost. Cost is also a, a huge factor, especially for leaseholders. And it's important to look at how the building safety manager is able to engage with all residents of all different sort of uh, tenures. Plus, you, you may throw in commercial residents into that as well, or com- commercial occupiers rather than residents, but com- commercial occupiers of uh, elements within that building. And it's about bringing that mix together and actually enabling that, that person to communicate effectively um, with, with all. So, yeah, being a good listener is, is going to be key. Being a good communicator is going to be key. But uh, resident voice, I think, is, is of utmost importance in this whole process. I guess, yes, that would help, um, obviously, to buy in engagement. I'm wondering if there's also a piece of not only just um, communicating and informing, which is which is key, and then obviously listening to their concerns, but maybe even an education piece here to to kind of imbue that, that feeling of more like social responsibility for the immediate environment in which they live in, be that my immediate neighbours that share party walls or below me or above me, um, but in the, in my, my current sort of community and, and what I do that affects them, I suppose. Oh, wholeheartedly. I, th- I think you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head, especially around the social responsibility. You've just got to look at some of the fires that have happened in, in uh, recent times over balconies, um, inappropriate storage. Um, th- these are all things that can, that can affect um, how, how the community operates within a high-rise residential building. And uh, I think you, you have to look at being able to build that rapport, um, educate sort of uh, the, the, the residents and the occupiers of, of the building. Um, you, you may have quite a high turnover of residents within certain buildings. So for the building safety manager to, to have that knowledge of, of how their building operates, who's within their building, not keeping a register of who's in the building, but having an, an, a knowledge of the type of people that are within the building, any specific needs they might have. And, and that's when you, you, you sort of bring that sort of whole sort of uh, community uh, piece back together on, uh, on engagement. 
Claire, you've also got uh, John. John, you might you reflect as well. And if you're the accountable person, the person who owns the building, who is going to appoint the building safety manager, they've got to consult the residents on, on all the costs involved with all of this. You know. Uh, and it wouldn't be surprising for residents to say, well, I don't want to pay vast amounts uh, of costs. So, you know, and, and that discussion is going to have, because it, 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 I, if, if I were in that position, I, I would want a gold standard for, you know, an next to nothing price, you know, and so someone's going to have to negotiate that with the people. And that communication is right at the beginning of all of this, you know, uh, and then the building safety manager, I mean, their role is to manage, you know, the, the higher level and all the people and the expertise that's coming in and out of that is not to mend tap washers. So, you know, the part of the communication is going to have to be a sort of triage arrangement to make sure exactly what the residents know that the, the position's there for. You know, because if they are flooded with, um, let's say, help desk inquiries, that is not there, you know, but that is the right. If I was a build, if I was a resident and I've got this fellow over the top called a building safety manager, the first person I'd ring up if I had something wrong, it would be him or her. You know, so this communication lines have got to be really, really clear. Yeah, that's a very good point. So there is there is a broader educational um, responsibility that probably we all have in, in order to get this kind of off the ground and accepted as, as the norm for the way forward. Um, Anthony, perhaps I can just ask you then, there was, there's been some discussion around when these sorts of things are implemented, that we we start with the point that we see as the highest risk. So um, the whole project starts amongst um, the biggest level of risk, and it, it may get kind of established there, but doesn't necessarily cascade down. Um, do, you, do you see this, the, the building safety manager role kind of being focused at the higher risk level at the moment? And, and what's the potential for it then to kind of cascade down? I mean, this is a debate we had at Working Group 8 right at the beginning. Um, fundamentally, it is not unreasonable for a resident or someone who's bought their accommodation to live safely and feel safe. So Working Group 8's work aimed that the work that the competence requirements we put out would be applicable for any building and I'd go right down to you know a shared house and a terrace thing in a student in a, in a student city that is not going to happen immediately um, we all know we've got a very large um, elephant to start nibbling away at these toenails at and that what well, this is what we're doing at the start starting at the highest risk but actually the highest buildings are not necessarily the highest risk so, again, there's so many moving parts. We've got to start somewhere. So we're starting with 18, 18 metres and seven storeys. If I were a resident on the sixth storey at 17 and a half metres, I'd expect the same sort of treatment. And then you start saying, well, you know, actually I'm an 11 storey block and, um, you know, I, this was a given, this was built and I bought it five years ago. Why the hell can't I have uh, this? Uh, so... I think in a roundabout way, your question is, we've got to start at the top. Um, we've then got a much different, more complex buildings like hospitals and prisons and such like, which are excluded at the time being, but they possibly need to come in because they are more complex. Are they more dangerous? Probably not, because people are always uh, always awake. The issue with residential is that people sleep in, in them most of the time, you know? Um, 
So uh, uh, we always hope, and I think the PAS uh, hopes that this will become, and certainly the Building Safety Alliance, hope that this becomes an expectation on of residents. You, uh, many of your uh, listeners will have heard about the residence charter, and that's fundamentally, I mean, I, I, I can't see that a, a residence in the private sector, it was aimed at social sector, you know, the, the public sector, but I can't see that a, a, a private resident would think any differently. So my answer is anyone who has any integrity should be dealing with this. Now, they might not have the the sort of Damocles from the regulator over their head, but actually there is there are many ways of being prosecuted for unsafe activities. Let's just leave it like that. Other than the building safety bill, which is what we're focusing on, I would hope people will pick up this and run with it right the way through the whole lot, and indeed most of it will filter down to commercial in one way and another at some point. But it won't be regulated quite so quickly. So I'm, I'm defining, I'm making a bit of a definition between people doing the right thing and residents demanding it, and the regulator having the, you know, the the, um, the hammer to hit the nail on those that don't do it properly. Does that answer it? It doesn't quite answer it because I can't. No, I, I appreciate that. And it, it, yes, it would be very interesting to see how the demand from residents or occupants um, dry, starts to drive this, you know, whether the momentum picks up from um, from that side as well, which, um, you know, it certainly has potential to. Um, in in that case, then maybe um, I'd open up my final question to to all three of you. And perhaps if we if we fast forwarded to five years from now, could you perhaps name one or two things that were different in five years' time that would indicate to you that this had been a success? What what would you like to see that's a change? Well, if I go, if I dip my toe in first, I'd like to see that the management of buildings generally, but residential specifically, to be much better risk managed. Um, you know, because you can have all the things. I mean, we have got problems other than cladding within some of these buildings, you know, uh, as we all know. Uh, and no doubt, as they get a bit older, um, you know, and they get opened up again for refurbishment, we'll find different things at different times. So we've got to get across to the industry generally that you're going to find matters that are, you know, maybe unseat one's confidence in the safety element. And we've got to go away and we've got to work out the best way of managing that risk uh, for the safety of these residents to make sure that they're happy. And it cannot be just throw a checkbook at it because people haven't got the checkbooks for all of this. You know, so I would hope, uh, my hope is that that risk management generally is much better understood, much better um, applied, uh, and uh, the outcome of that risk management gets us a long way to where we want to be with, with, with these residents being safe. Obviously, accidents are going to happen. We're still going to get fires within buildings. We're still going to have incidents within buildings. But I'd like to see a reduction in the um, the actual severity of what happens. And if we're remediating, as we're doing at the moment, so many of our buildings, and we're remediating a number of the high-risk factors, plus um, piggybacking on what Anthony said about better risk management, we should have a, a much better understanding of our buildings as we go forward. And that should lead to a reduction, certainly in the severity, if we don't necessarily you know, get a reduction in the frequency. And that, that would be a great thing to see. Great. Thank you, John. And John Briggs. Well, uh, 
I, I think from my my point of view, I'd like um, to see. I think you know everything that uh, is happening now with the PAS and with the, the the law coming in and so on. I think that's that's very good, but you know I think we're still building buildings today now that are unsafe. We're still using cladding now today that is flammable that will burn, and we've been given an opportunity here to learn lessons and to make things right. Unless we learn those lessons and unless we stop building buildings out of flammable materials like cross-laminated timber and uh, timber-framed buildings and so on and so forth. There are huge lessons to learn. And I, my hope for five years uh, hence is I'm confident that, that, you know, the paths will go ahead and that we will have a safer place looking after high-rise uh, residential blocks. But um, my hope is that in five years we will be building buildings out of things that don't burn. There we have it. Thank you so much. Thanks, all three of you, um, for your valuable insights from your from your different perspectives. That's made for just a really interesting conversation. So we'll wrap it up there, and I will um, say thank you very much. Cheers, all. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you very much, Claire, for hosting. I want to thank our guests for joining us today and offering their valuable insights to this discussion. It's really good to see some of the really important work coming out of Working Group 8. Obviously, there is further work to be done, but having a competency framework in place for this role provides a positive direction to move in. We hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. To make sure that you don't miss out on future episodes, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a review.